Thank you so much, Phil and Bridget. Appreciate that. I'm going to read from one of Paul's letters. It's uh, to the church, the churches in the region of Ephesus, Western Turkey. As a chapter four, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says... When he ascended on high, he took captives, many captives, and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, I will, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect mature, the, the mature body of him who is the, he, who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I, uh, not so long ago, was, had the privilege of uh, spending some time with um, some relatives and uh, with a 12-year-old cousin of mine. And... Um, he was very excited because he had joined a new team, and that new team was the lacrosse team. It's that funny game with like fishing nets, and you fling a hard ball around. And uh, I was, it was in America, and I was sitting um, on the bleachers. It's kind of a bit chilly. And uh, the, you know, the kids were doing their best, but I was more drawn to the coach who was on the sideline, and remember that these were 12-year-olds, kind of first outing with their lacrosse sticks and uh, their helmets and, and all the lacrosse gear. And I have to tell you, this coach was shouting and jumping up and down and gesturing positively and not so positively. And he was aggressive. I mean, you could hear him shouting at the other coach and, and the opponent players. I mean, he was passionately engaged in this match with his 12-year-old team, you'd have thought that he was coaching the national side in a final game of the World Lacrosse Championships. Such was his effort on the sideline. 
Anyway, uh, things weren't going so well and called a timeout, you know, all this. And uh, they were called together and they did the huddles and being very American, they did that hop, hop, hop thing, which I'm not entirely sure what it does, but they always do it. And then they go, oh, you know, and off back they go. And they're meant to be playing better and uh, they've been given some uh, tips and he did sort of smack the helmets of a couple of them. I think they hadn't done so well. And it seemed like a matter of life and death for these 12-year-olds as they ran up and down, tossing the ball out of their funny glorified fishing nets and most of the time they dropped it or it wasn't caught it was such a sight and the coach was so passionate shouting the commands full of imperatives pass that ball run faster and this little kids clonking around in their stuff work together and the team tried their best as the coach instructed and they kind of in theory knew what they were meant to be doing but their skills were somewhat lacking it made me chuckle. Paul is a little like that coach. I mean, he's not jumping manically on the sideline of the church in Ephesus because he's in prison. But he is calling out imperatives, commands, in other words. That's a fancy grammar word. Nevertheless, with as much gusto and passion, not so much rudeness, to the church, to the believers, to those he is kind of coaching and saying, go for it. Live the life, he says. Live the life. That this book of Ephesians is, is a wonderful book. One of, uh, if one is allowed, favorites in Scripture. One of my favorite parts of, of the New Testament, at least. And uh, no doubt you've probably read it at some point. Um, it's a good passage. You're probably aware that... Uh, Maybe, if not, uh, this is good for, for knowledge, that in chapters 1 to 3, the, there's a kind of focus really very much on Jesus, God, God's grace and salvation of who God is, what he has done, and he's the definite focus and theme and heart of the whole book. It's about God and first comes what God has done, his initiative, his action, his focus, his involvement, his initiative, the first mover. And then in chapter 4, uh, we get the consequence of God's grace. What it means, this is God, this is what he has done, and this is the so what. This is the truth, therefore, this is now the so what, what it means, how it applies. The truth of the gospel and its impact upon us. Not just the truth in a box in a museum that we look at and go, hmm, very nice. But the truth that apprehends and captures us. In many ways, the key word of chapter, uh, chapters 1 to 3, so much about salvation, the key word is Christ, the anointed one, the sent one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. In chapters 4 to 6, the key word is Lord, interestingly. 26 times in Ephesians, 20 of those times, Lord, kurios, in chapters 4 to 6. Why is that significant? Because Lord is, is our response. It's our statement, Lord and Savior, that we honor Him, we obey Him, we turn to Him in the light of all that He has done, not to prove ourselves, not to, as He would say earlier on, that we, we don't do anything by works or have any kind of basis of, of being right before God because of something that we have done. It's by grace we have been saved. Not by works, so no one can boast. But because of grace, 
because of our understanding, because of that moment when we believe in Jesus and say, I trust in the Christ, the sent one, the Savior. The expression Lord comes to play. The confession of our faithful commitment, Lord Jesus Christ. Live the life. Paul says, I urge you then to live a life. Obedience, following Jesus, someone as I was hearing it described it as following the trail that Jesus walks. Obedience is always the response to grace, to the goodness, the action of God. Live the life, our life. The Paul would, would shout from the sideline with great passion, live the life, he says. Live the life that if Jesus truly rose from the dead, having died for your sins, then the world and the universe is different. Of course it is. He's risen from the grave. What he said, what he spoke of is true. I spoke to someone this week in a coffee shop who's a student and kind of clever and thinking all sorts about big questions. And he said, well, there's some sort of God probably but I'm not sure about this Jesus. And I shared my, my story of my own conversion, my own journey to faith. And I knew from a very early point that if this is true, this Jesus, if he is the one who fully represents God, shows us what, what life is about, dies and rises again, that the tomb is empty, and says, come follow me, we are left with that choice, yes or no. Not gentle ambivalence to say, nice story, thanks. Believe or not, enter in or stay without. It's about my life. It's about your life. The gospel really is about what we do with it, about how he enters in, how he, you are precious to him. We've sung it, how he died to, let, to set you free, to give you new life, counted your life worthy and precious since before the very beginning of creation, knows you and has ordained life that it should be lived with him and waiting for that response of yes. It is about your life, that you are precious and you matter to him so much. That it's about Jesus, entirely his initiative and action and work because God's love is so great that he enables us to be rescued from darkness and put into life. We are shaped by that saving action of God. And in view of all that, says Paul, this then is the implication from chapter 4, verse 1, from the imperative, I urge you. The coach is kind of, Coach Paul is jumping and gesticulating wildly. He said, come on, get in, stuck, get stuck in. How? Well, not like the aggressive coach, you know, with the lacrosse stick. You know, hit him on the head, you know. Be tougher. Block him, get aggressive. Man up. To these 12-year-old boys. Paul's commands, his imperatives, I urge you, be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love. Make every effort. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another 
and in love. The first three of those, humility, gentleness, and patience, are to do with inside. Their attitudes of the heart. To do with my ego, my internal motives, my attitudes. Be gentle, be humble, be patient. Our society says they're not that virtuous, they're not that great a commodity, they're not that, that celebrated in our world. Study hard, get a good education, get that great CV. Take the next step on the ambition ladder. Be a bit cutthroat. Paul says, be humble, be gentle, be patient. And bear with one another in love. Now, the first three are relatively easy to do if you don't have to meet anyone. It's true, isn't it? I mean, my mum came for Christmas, and <laughs> she doesn't know how to listen to this streamed online, so I'm kind of safe. Um, <laughs> I know you're saying, go oh, on, listen to this message. Um, she has this habit of waking up really early. And uh, she does have an iPad, and she's discovered that she can play the Archer's Omnibus at five in the morning. And, like, nah, 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 and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's not even light. It's Christmas Day, and the wretched Archer's are coming. Sorry if you love the Archer's. I was inoculated against them in childhood. I hate the thing. And you know, I woke up in such a grump some mornings. So it's like, nah, 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 nah. I'm like, you stupid archers. Why is mum awake at five? Does she not know it's Christmas Day? <laughs> Boxing Day, Christmas Eve every day. She did that thing. I don't know if your parents do that. Comes in and you're kind of like, <laughs> snoozing away. And it opens the curtains. I like, uh, it's morning. I go, yes, I know. I don't live with my mum all the time. I just think she came for Christmas. She still does it. Even though I have... <laughs> there are some battles you can't win, Phil. <laughs> Do you know what? From the very first minute of some days, my level of bearing with one another in love was quite firmly challenged. But it's not a let-off. Humility is, in one ways, one of the entire characteristics of Jesus, who in the very nature of God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. I'm going to reach up. But because he was God, made himself nothing. He humbled himself. And there is a posture in that, but it's also not saying, oh, aren't I good? But saying, I will give of myself. Someone phrased it, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not a worm complex, I'm so worthless and rubbish. But rather saying, I trust in you, Lord. I trust in you. I don't have to be my own best defense. 
and I'll give it myself. My life doesn't have to be revolving around myself, me, myself, and I. Imagine what I want and how I can get it and how I can use other people for my ends. Humility says, I will look out to the interests of others. No desire to trample and step over and use others as a commodity. Saying, actually, God has purposed and predestined and is at work in my life in this world and he loves me continually and my awareness of God can grow. And to see the person next to you, even my mum on a morning when I'm grumpy, is made in the image of God. It's not easy. Gentleness, a forgotten virtue. I know in our politically correct time, we've even lost the phrase gentleman. I know there's a lot of classism attached and, you know, who, who are the men to open the women and hold it open for the, the door open for the lady to go first? I mean, it's a bit old-fashioned, isn't it? Gentleness. It is a forgotten virtue. I'm not calling us back to Victorian morals. I am calling us back to what Paul urges in us. Did you at Christmas get a package come through the post with that phrase, handle with care, fragile? Do not bend this way up. Fragile. So often, uh, we hope that post, posties and delivery women read that. But I've seen the YouTube videos where it's phew, tossed out. All of us have a handle with care. All of us have a fragility. All of us are really quite vulnerable. And Paul says we need to remove harshness and violence, a lack of caring or a bluntness. Healthy relationships can't exist with threats or force. Gentleness conveys a sensitivity, a desire not to harm, a valuing the other. With gentleness, people are valued and esteemed and nurtured. It doesn't mean we're pushovers, far from it. Jesus was completely gentle, but at times oh so strong and often quite fierce. But very often, the fierceness came out in confronting corporate injustice of systems and institutions, very rarely to individuals and people. When it did, it was often because there was such a strong hardness of the Pharisees, of those who would burden and labor and so weight down others. But he never became violent with people. Patience is a, is a word that, that is um, the word macrothymia. And essentially it means to have a big or wide soul. Macro meaning the big, the big picture. To have a big or wide so patience is an exercise of largeness of soul that endures beyond 
arrogance and difficulties over a period of time. We all can grow in patience. Little Miriam's over there. And mums know all about patience. Sleepless nights. Troubles feeding. They get older and they don't want to have their nappies changed. And they say no more than yes. We all know about the struggle of impatience, of, of being cut up or cutting up others, of road rage. Patience. How are we when we don't get our own agenda fulfilled, to want it now, the instant, because of my convenience? Patience allows others time and space to give room to grow. Phil mentioned it this morning in his message. The sower sowed the seed and went and slept and woke up and slept and woke up and, and didn't harass the seed. It just, he was patient. And lo and behold, the seed grew. I once brought seed back in, uh, illegally from one of my travels. It was a tamarind seed. I quite wanted to grow a tamarind tree. It's a little bit ambitious to grow a tamarind tree in, in England. Um, I didn't know how to grow a tamarind tree, so I had six seeds. So I tried different ways. I was kind of like a, remembering my botany. But the thing that I, they didn't teach me and, and was demonstration of impatience is that you know, some I, I, I put in the freezer to freeze them. Some I burnt. Sometimes things need to burn to, to go. Sometimes I soaked them before I planted them. Some, some of the soil I had, like, sandy. Some of, you know, I was doing all, you know, proper, like, trying to get this tamarind, these tamarinds to germinate. But I was very impatient. After a week, I thought, I wonder how they're doing. So I was kind of, like, <laughs> rooting about. And a week later, what's changed? And I think I probably prevented them from growing because I was messing with them. We need to put up with one another. Gosh, that's hard. Putting up with one another. Bearing with one another in love. Not just bearing with one another, but in love. It's part of the core values of marriage. Paul extends it to the church relationship. Of bearing with each other in love because he has called us each one of us, each person, the difficult and the great, the popular and the desperately introverted, the beautiful and those with B.O. Christians are part of each other to receive one another, to think about one another, to serve one another, to love one another, to build up one another, to bear each other's burdens, to submit to each other, encourage one another, those are all imperatives from the New Testament. Christianity, this faith that we're called to, is a God-centered, Christ-defined, other-orientated faith. Tolerant love. Bearing one with one another in love. It says, I have rights, but I'm not going to choose them or ele elevate them or insist upon them above those of others. And that can be evidence right this evening. Again, it's a little bit harder when everyone's got their own iPad and device to stream something on. But 
Try it old school. Sit down by the telly with the remote control and see who's in charge of it. Do you remember those days? Kate's having a coughing fit. <coughs> this is a big ass. Who's always in control of the remote? Give it up. Donna's going, no. <laughs> you don't have one. You have to get off the, off the settee. And... Oh, you don't have a telly, neither do I. But if you do have a telly, or even more impressive, who chooses the music in the car? The radio station. Who's in charge of the orcs lead? Or maybe to us younger people, and I, I hear it lots. I'm thinking of Josh and Alice here, because Tim's in the house. How often do we do we challenge dad's dress sense? <laughs> I won't be seen out with you like that. I've heard it. Bear with one another in love. Does it really matter? Does it matter to say, oh, what will people think if they see me? I mean, this is dad. Live the life, my life. But there's another aspect, our life. You know, sometimes we read scripture and personalize it, and it is personal. But in our Western context, we just sometimes read it as me, myself, and I. But actually, it's, it's a greater call. It's our life. This is together. I've implied this because, you know, it's, it's quite easy to be patient on your, on your own. To be humble and gentle in the context of solitary life. But Paul says, actually, the goal of those six essentials are actually towards unity. Make every effort, verse 3, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity is God-given. That's the first thing to, to write large. It's not something we create and manufacture and concoct. It's, it's the gift and the blessing of God. And we can't have God to ourselves. It's the challenge of, of character development and of the wonder of the body of Christ to say we're not just little clones in little boxes that gets on in our relationship with God separate from anyone else. The same Spirit baptizes us into Christ as the same Spirit who works in all Christians. One Lord, one faith, one body, one church, one baptism. The local church representing the larger, not just a cell, but actually a demonstration in the wonderful mix of humanity and ages and personality type and ethnic background and gender, that this, this weird group of people, including myself, is a reflection of the unity that God is calling humanity to. Seven times in a very short passage, one, one. The gospel, the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ causes us to enter into unity because we're unified with him and out of that unity with him, we are brought into the company of his family. It's a shared faith. Unity already exists. It's a state that Christ has won. 
And part of our confession of lordship is to say that we will value and maintain it and cherish it and guard it. And even when we don't agree on things, and even when it seems really hard to see how can this be reconciled together to live in the unity of our common commitment to Christ. Rupert Maldinius said this, unity in essentials, liberty in incidentals, and in all things, love. You can't have a string with one end, a coin with only one side. There's no such thing as relating to God, following God, without relating to God's other children. Living my life, living our life, living it out. That on the basis of who we're called to be, he says he commissions us, equips us as the body of Christ. Unity, not to become clones and automatons and like drone bees or worker ants, but in the various tapestry of all of our background and story being woven together by the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit as God intentions us, taking brokenness and jars of clay and, and, and kind of fractured, messed up, misshapen, you know, the, the stuff that would be sold on the special offer at Cadbury's World because it's not perfect. That's us. But that unity exists in the diversity and the wonderful complexity of how all of our threads get woven together in Christ. That each person has different gifts for ministry. Paul in Romans, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. We do. Gifts to each person. But undeniably, every person has gifts. Each person is a gift to the church. living out our life, saying, how, how may I play my part? Not to become worker, 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 busy, busy, busy. But part of being coming to the family is to fulfill all that he has given us. And living the life growing life. It's not static, it's alive. 11, chapter 4, verses 11 uh, to, to um, 16. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people and so forth. It's, it's one of Paul's where he just gets into the flow and poof, here it comes. Like, like chapter 1, uh, the verses 3 to, to, to 14 are actually just a whole sentence without punctuation and without any kind of sense of just take a break and a breathe, a breath. It's a real challenge if you want to try in the, later on the company of yourself to give it a go. Can you read chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 in one go? <gasps> Maybe start off with verse 11 to 16 of chapter 4. It's bad grammar. It doesn't have breaks and pauses and clauses. But Paul is saying it's one theme. It's one theme to be growing. From infancy to maturity. I've no longer been tossed about, but actually held together. I'm no longer living in the place of deception, but speaking truth. I mean, gosh, have you seen the commentary on, on Donald Trump's first day? 
speaking truth. Gosh, that's a big challenge today. Deception. The white lie, the, the comment that would make life slightly easier because it just gets us off the hook. Of growing and knowing that we had a human origin, but now we are in Christ. Growing in Him. Crafty people. Serving themselves versus honest, loving people serving others. Paul from the sidelines is cheering and shouting and saying, come on church, here's my coaching instruction. And he's not doing it to kind of make us come off the pitch and say we're so far from world-class teams. You may think you're the 12-year-old in the lacrosse team and you're always dropping the ball and everyone's going, oh, don't pass it to them. But God's picked us and called us and said, you're on the team with the intention of us joining and learning from and being part of and and moment by moment, living it out, living the life, living the calling. Philip Spencer said, it's by no means enough to have knowledge of the Christian faith, for Christianity consists rather of practice. Live the life. Live the life. Should we pray? Let's stand together.